so this morning we are going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians. If you brought that, if you brought your Bible with you, you can go ahead and open up there. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Once again, I would encourage you to go ahead and open up there. Uh, if you didn't bring your Bibles with you, that scripture will be on the screen behind me uh, when we get to that point. Um, so you can read there, or you can always uh, find a pew Bible somewhere around you if you would like to read out of one of those. So as you noticed in the video, and as you can certainly tell by the wonderful decorations inside and outside today, as well as our uh, nativity that's been set up out there, uh, Jim Cox did all the hard work on that. Uh, looks wonderful out there. We thank you all for, uh, for doing all those decorations. But as you can tell, uh, we are narrowing in on the uh, season of Christmas, uh, narrowing in on the season of Advent. Uh, and we celebrate and take time to slow down, um, especially in such a busy time of year. Uh, we take time to purposefully slow down uh, here at First Baptist Church and think about what it means uh, to celebrate the coming of Christ uh, and to recognize that we're still waiting for him to come again, uh, to come in his fullness and to come in completion uh, and to finish the work uh, that was started on that first Christmas day. It started long before then, uh, but the Christ that has come once is coming again, and we recognize uh, that reality and that hope that we have during the season of Advent. So you'll notice throughout the next several weeks uh, that we have our Advent wreath set up with the candles lit. Uh, we do that um, not for any other reason but then to draw our hearts to the, toward the reality that is Christ is here. And again, we are still waiting that final consummation. And today, we're going to light the first candle we already have, and we're going to talk about the reality of hope. So in that vein, let me ask you this question. How do you keep from losing heart from losing hope when things get tough, when things get difficult? Do you have some sort of uh, habit that you go to or some sort of consolation or, or an object or a person or a behavior uh, that you run to whenever things get difficult that helps you push through, that keeps you from giving up? Maybe it's uh, coping behaviors, uh, you know, like a, a rhythm that you go to, something that you do to refresh yourself uh, that's good. Um, maybe you go back to the country. Uh, if you, if you uh, have any land in the country and you, you take a day off, uh, you just kind of take in that, that slowed down environment and you breathe in the fresh air and you, you take it that way. Maybe you have unhealthy coping mechanisms too, uh, certain behaviors or addictions that people run to when they need uh, to, to get away from the, uh, the stress of life. Maybe you ignore your emotions. Maybe you just act like everything's fine. Uh, move on. Uh, don't worry about it. Nothing to see here. I'm just going to push forward and push on uh, and not worry about any of these negative feelings because I don't have time for them. Maybe you, in a healthy way, take a time out. Uh, again, maybe you take time away from work or time away from whatever is stressing you and you uh, uh, kind of... Uh, Rethink the whole process, rethink your calling, uh, rethink the whole thing that's got you stressed out, why you do it in the first place, and you come back to that after a timeout, reinvigorated, reminded uh, of, of your motivation to begin with. One thing that I do when I am close to giving up is I think about counting wins, even small ones. And I remember doing this specifically in seminary. I remember anytime I would have a, a long book to read or a long paper to write, uh, that I would read a few pages, and when I started to uh, fall asleep, just to be perfectly honest, or when I started to kind of fade out, um, I would look at the last page that I had to read, or the end of the book, and I would count how many I had left. And I'd say, okay, I'm, I'm a fifth of the way done on what I have to get done, and I would break it up into those sections. And the same with papers. Um, I would write a bunch of pa pages. Uh, I would write as much as I could think to write, and I realized I, wasn't, I still wasn't done. Uh, but instead of 
you know, the, the kind of, oh, no, what am I going to do because I, I don't have anything else to say and I have 10 more pages to write, I would think, okay, I'm halfway through this 20-page paper. Now, what can I do to fill up the second half? I'm counting those small wins. Maybe you visualize something that I'm not necessarily good at, but I know that there's a lot of leadership gurus that suggest it, of thinking what it would be like trying to close your eyes, shut off everything around you, and let your imagination go to what it would be like when you've completed the goal. What life would be like at, on the other side of the thing you're striving for. Maybe if you've ever longed for retirement, you know, you close your eyes and you visualize what that might be like or some other goal. I know athletes kind of have that, this behavior. They uh, think about, they actually go through some of them, the really good ones. Uh, they don't just visualize the perfect shot in golf or the perfect pass uh, in football. They visualize actually raising the trophy at the end of the Super Bowl or the Masters Championship or whatever it might be that they're going for. They visualize each of those goals and what it would look like if they actually accomplished them. I don't know what it is that you do when you're in the midst of losing hope, but all of us have been there. All of us have been in that station of life where it feels like losing heart is right around the corner. If one more thing goes wrong, then this whole thing is going to fall apart. And when we are in the midst of the temptation to lose heart, Advent is the perfect time of year. Because the story of Christmas... The story of a God who comes to us is the story of a God who wears flesh and comes for you and me before we lose hope, so that we don't lose hope, so that we don't lose heart. Over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about hope and love and joy and peace and, of course, Christ himself. And today, we're going to talk specifically about hope, the hope that we have in this season of Advent. I hope that you also know that this hope is not some trivial thing. This hope is not something we only look back on because Christ has already been born, but it's something we also look forward to because Christ is coming again. And just as Bill talked earlier about the, the, the 400 plus year waiting period between the end of Malachi and the coming of Jesus and the people waiting for this coming Messiah that the prophets had foretold, uh, generations, many people living and dying during that period of time between the last word of God from a prophet and the first word of Jesus, uh, the first uh, appearance of the Messiah. In that time, the people were waiting, waiting with a hopefulness, but waiting, waiting on something that was promised to a generation before them, Many of them weren't around to hear the promise, but were told about it by their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. And many of them had died before they saw the promise. And we kind of live in that same place today. We read the Testaments. We read the stories of Jesus, the gospel. We know that he has come. We know that he is present through his spirit, and we know that he's coming again. But in all likelihood, unless Christ decides to come very quickly, many of us will be born after the first coming of Jesus, obviously, and will pass away before the second coming. And we exist in this middle time, this waiting period. But we do so with hopefulness. And how I think we do that is by fixing our eyes in the right direction. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And we see this in Paul's letter, the second letter to the Corinthians. That we fix our eyes not on what we can see, not on things that are transient, but we fix our eyes on what can't be seen. So before we open up the scriptures and read together, let's pray together one more time. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for the hope that we have in you. And God, we thank you that we can come to you and, and Lord, that we can 
even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of all the busyness going on in our, in our lives with holidays and traveling and getting over the, the Thanksgiving uh, uh, energy expenditure that we did of, of driving to see family and stuffing our faces and all the things that came with that and, and just a busy time of year, God, I pray that you might help us to quiet ourselves, to remove distraction, to focus solely on what you have for us this morning. And God, that you might speak to us through your holy word and through your spirit. God, take away all distraction, including my own humanity, and allow us all to hear simply what you have. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Paul writes these words to his brothers and sisters in Corinth. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You know, although Paul is celebrated today by most of the church as arguably the greatest missionary to ever live, his journey was not without its fair share of difficulty, not without its fair share of disappointment and setbacks. All you have to do is read one of Paul's lists of sufferings that he had, the shipwrecks and the snake bites and the, the stonings and all sorts of other things, the, the, the people that pursued him and, and how close he came to death and how many times it happened and how many times he was under house arrest. Many of the letters that he wrote came to us during those seasons when he was under house arrest. To the onlooker then, Paul could have been seen, especially in that moment, we have 2,000 years of history to look back on, but especially in this moment that Paul is writing this, Paul could have been seen by the onlooker as unsuccessful. Here is this guy who was likely uh, an up-and-comer in the Jewish world, uh, a teacher, an important person uh, in the Jewish world before he decided to kind of defect and go with the Christians. And then he changed everything about himself. He went from being uh, the one who pursued Christians to the one who was actually supporting them. And he, he gave up his entire life, turned his back on everything and everyone that had invested in him by turning towards Christ. And he gave up all of that. So why? So that he could be snake-bitten and shipwrecked and stuck in jail? Uh, so that he could do and say all of these things. But then it, it looks like there's a lot of people that reject him, especially the people. And you can see his wrestling with this in one of his later letters in Romans 9, 10, and 11, especially chapter 11, where he wrestles with the fact that the very people that he wants to be saved the most, his Jewish brothers and sisters, are the ones that aren't coming, are the ones that, that aren't converting, uh, are the ones that he, he wishes that he could give up his own salvation so that they might be saved. You can see why the world might look at Paul and say, okay, you preach all of this, you teach all of this, but what's really different besides you being stuck? By extension, the members of the churches that he launched, including the one in Corinth, likely also felt that same sting of difficulty. They lived in unchristian environments. They were probably very small congregations that got started. 
likely not a ton of converts immediately after their, their first arrival. And that's why you see in Corinth him writing a couple of letters to continue to encourage these believers, despite the fact that they continued, even after he came, even after he sent one letter, and then he sends another, they continue to encounter difficulty. They continue to encounter problems. Paul takes heart, though, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if you look back earlier in this chapter, earlier in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, you will see him kind of resting in that. And resting as he does many times in his epistles in the reality that if we die with Christ, if we experience the pain of his death, if we experience the pain of his humiliation, then we also get to experience the glory of his resurrection. Those of us who die with Christ are raised also in him. One of Paul's kind of themes throughout his letters, that if we experience the pain, we also get the glory. And so he takes heart in that. For in this, we take heart. Obviously, there is a need for the people to be encouraged. This is kind of like a pep talk that Paul is giving to the Corinthians. He says, do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. It's a challenge to not give up despite appearances. To lose heart essentially means to lose hope, to give up. When someone loses heart, it's that point that you get to where you've completely given up on the idea of success. It's that point that you get to in, in your job, in your life, if you've ever been an athlete in the game, uh, whatever it might be. It's that point that you get to where you come to the realization, at least as far as you're concerned, that I cannot win. That is a hopeless point. I don't know if you've ever been there. Uh, when I was a high school athlete, I was there a few times. We played six-man football, and the score can get really out of hand really quickly. And you come to that conclusion when you're down 30 points and there's three minutes left on the clock, I'm not going to win. There's no way. There's no way this is going to work out. And you come to that reality, I cannot win. So when Paul says, don't lose heart, he's talking to a group of people that are on the brink of that, that are on the brink of saying to themselves, we can't win. And maybe even he himself, realizing that he is on the brink of that. That he, from all appearances, from everything going on in his life, should be at least, for a human understanding, on the brink of coming to that conclusion. When hope is lost, success only happens in spite of us. We're surprised by success. We're surprised when we win, when we lose hope. We're surprised when things go well, when we lose hope. If you've ever been in that situation, if you want to know what life looks like when you've lost hope, it's when something goes well and you're surprised. Uh, it's when things start to take a turn for the positive and you are taken off guard because you're assuming everything is going in the negative. That means you probably are on the brink or if not completely have given up hope, have lost heart. So anybody else subscribe to Disney Plus yet? Anybody out there? Okay, Disney Plus, a new video subscription, $6.99 a month. I'm not giving you a commercial. I kind of am. Uh, but we have kids, so it's a really like uh, affordable thing for us. Uh, we dove into it the other day. I say the other day. It's been a couple of weeks. Uh, and uh, we've kind of, the kids have started going back and watching some of the old school Disney movies, which has been fun, uh, like Dumbo, the old one, uh, Lady and the Tramp, those sorts of things, stuff I remember watching over and over again on VHS when I was a kid. Um, but not only that, I get access to the entire Disney library too. Now that comes with Star Wars and Marvel and all of that. 
But it also comes, I'm going to be honest, with Pixar. And I'm kind of a Pixar fan. And my favorite Pixar movie, this might not be many of your favorite Pixar movies, but my favorite Pixar movie is Inside Out. Anybody a fan of Inside Out? It's kind of a heavy movie. A lot of psychology at work within that movie. I think it would be great for a college-level psychology course, uh, a class, to watch that movie together and break down the emotions and how they intertwine together and how... Joy needs sadness, and they work together. Anyway, it's a wonderful movie. So there's a scene in the movie where Riley, the main character, which I'll give you some heads up, basically all the movie takes place in Riley's mind and her emotions kind of coping with her parents moving from Minnesota to um, California or somewhere else in the country. Uh, And she's kind of coping with that, moving from one place to another, uh, and her emotions dealing with that. A really cool, interesting way to look at what goes on in the mind of a child and all of us as human beings. But there's a place in the movie where she basically gives up. She's ready to run away because she's so angry with her parents, because she's so downtrodden over how everything is going. And if you remember that part of the movie, the emotions that are still in her brain at that point lose control. And the control panel that the emotions use to control her goes dead. Everything turns black. And it says that one of the, the, the character that plays anger says, we can't even make her feel anything anymore. I think that's kind of what losing hope looks like. Uh, That's what giving up heart looks like. When we're on that side, when we can't, when when you encounter something and you're not even angry about it anymore. Uh, You're not angry. Anger usually comes when we feel like we can change something. I get angry about stuff that I still feel like I can change. When I don't feel like I can change it, it's less anger and more resignation. Putting my hands up and walking away. So I think that's a good depiction of what hopelessness, of what giving up heart looks like. And when that happens, success only happens in spite of us. If things go well, it's because someone else has done this. This is really, this is kind of beside the point, but this is the whole gospel story. Uh, All of us are hopelessly lost in sin without Jesus. Uh, All of us are completely incapable of saving ourselves. We cannot do anything about it. And he comes and surprises us with the gospel doing something that humanity never saw coming, nor could humanity do on its own. Christ has come for us. And that really is the whole story of Christmas in that Jesus, God, came to us and for us in a way that we were not expecting to save us from the sting of sin and death once and for all. So Paul is reminding people who have already been surprised by the gospel, who have been given this true hope, not to lose hope. And he does so after this point through a series of dichotomies of things on either end of a spectrum. He talks about our outer self wasting away and our inner self being renewed daily. Now, in a very literal sense, our outer self is physically wasting away. All of us are aging as we speak. There are cells in your body dying right now. I hate to break it to you, but that's happening. You are getting older with every second. It's part of life. It's part of living to realize that we have an expiration date, that none of us are getting out of this thing alive, uh, that all of us are going to, if the Lord tarries, pass away someday. We are physically wasting away. We are physically aging Death has always been one of the great enemies of mankind, as you see it in literature and movies and all sorts of places. But there is an energy that comes from walking with Christ that you can't find anywhere else. Some of the most energetic people that I've ever had the experience of knowing are wasted away on the outside but are full of Christ on the inside. And there's just something about that kind of energy, something about that kind of personality. Some of the most energetic people I've known are some of the oldest people that I have known uh, because they seem to continue to go on despite 
going to the doctor for all the ailments that they have and all of the difficulties that they've seen around them and all of the reasons to despair, people that they've known that have passed away, people that they're waiting to meet on the other side, despite all of those difficulties, still maintaining hope and maintaining joy in the midst of that, there is something renewing about that kind of joy, about that kind of peace. Now, science will even tell you that health is more than physical. That there is a, a health, a physical health that can come from a spirituality. That's the way that science would describe it. Generic sense of those who, who have some sort of, if you ask someone if you're spiritual, uh, if they say yes to that question, there are some health benefits that come with that. Uh, there, there are certain behaviors that are avoided if people are religious. But there's also just something that comes with the peace that Christ brings. It should be no surprise to us, those of us who do believe in Christ. I don't know about you, but there are times... When I am tired physically, but inwardly, I am whole and I am at peace. Uh, when I've spent a lot of time with my family and I've worn myself out, this weekend would be part of it. In the last 10 days, we've been back and forth between West Texas twice, seen a lot of people, traveled even while we were there between Abilene and even further west. Uh, and, and when we got home, we were tired, but my heart was, was full. We had a really good time with our family, got to see people we haven't seen in a while, Got to watch the boys interact with their cousins, and we know that they love that. And, and there's just something invigorating about that, something inwardly renewing about that kind of energy. Health is more than physical. And we can renew ourselves daily by maintaining that connection with Christ. Appearances are never the most important thing for Christ followers in Scripture. Appearances are never the most important thing for Christ followers in Scripture. Uh, what is on the outside is never the most important thing. As a matter of fact, Jesus, when he goes after the Pharisees, tells them that they look wonderful on the outside, but on the inside they are like whitewashed tombs full of death and decay, dead men's bones, even though the tomb looks wonderfully crystal clean and white on the outside. There is something to be said about a Christianity in our world today that focuses so much on the outside on making sure that everyone thinks we're fine, of making sure that everyone thinks we, we have it all together. Uh, we make sure we get all the, the surface-level stuff done, that we maintain the, the kind of family look and the kind of home look and the kind of uplifting, positive attitude despite our inwardly de de decaying attitude to make sure everyone thinks everything is okay. We've really been getting this one backward in the American world for quite a while with the whole advent of the prosperity gospel that focuses on um, that, that if you're poor or if you're struggling, it means that Christ is not blessing you. That is unscriptural. That is unbiblical. Toss that theology out. Instead, we can realize that even when we are poor, even when we are sick, even when we are struggling, that there is an inward peace, an inward joy that comes from Christ that overcomes what is going on in the outside. And yes, it doesn't look as attractive to the rest of the world, but if they could only see what is on the inside, which is kind of our job to tell them, then it will be more attractive. Because in the midst of pain, outwardly, we look beyond that. We look beyond appearance. And we recognize, as Paul says, that this light momentary affliction should not be compared to the eternal and incomparable glory that will someday come. Now, Paul is not saying that the struggle isn't real. He's not saying that life isn't difficult. He's not saying that his life in particular is not difficult. Again, go read one of his lists. 2 Corinthians 11 is a good example of all the sorts of things that went badly for him. 
Reality is still reality, and reality can be difficult. Paul is not running from that fact when he calls his affliction light and momentary. Paul is simply saying that relatively speaking, relatively speaking, our affliction is nothing in light of the coming glory. I can get really angry at my boys sometimes. Really angry for different reasons. But Cannon, the three-year-old, the one in the middle, he has this proclivity that I think only a toddler can have to crack a smile at the right moment, even when you're super angry. To give you that look, he's, he's a fan of boots right now, and he has some worn-out boots. We've volunteered to buy him some new ones. He doesn't want new ones. He has some worn-out boots that he'll just go and put on, uh, and he'll wear them. And, and the other day, we, I was angry at him, and he, he was mad and crying because I wouldn't give him what he wanted. And then he ran off. And we have a hardwood floor in the house, and he ran off, and you start to click, 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 click at the boots. And there's just something you couldn't do. I couldn't do in that moment, but help laugh, no matter how angry I was, right? I couldn't help but recognize the joy of that. And that's something that all of you that have parented or all of you that have been in any human relationship, period, you know that there are times when the people that you love the most, you want to strangle. And then a second later, they do something, some little thing where you want to give them a big hug instead. And you're reminded of how much you love them and how much you need them in your life. Light, momentary affliction is kind of like that in the light of the glory of God. Let me give you a uh, more serious example. I've already told you once about seminary. I I enjoyed seminary. I don't want anybody to get the, uh, the, the idea that I didn't. But it was difficult. It was intellectually the most trying thing I've ever done. Um, and it required a long amount of work. It was three years after four years before that getting my undergrad. And the amount of work that I did, the kind of academic work that I did, I didn't think I was capable of doing. And there were times when I wanted to give up, particularly after Thanksgiving break or spring break. In that last month of each semester, especially the last one where I had stuff to put together at the last minute, didn't think that I could get it done, looking forward to that day and then uh, getting married in the middle of it, pastoring a church in the middle of it and having to deal with all of these things. It was a difficult time in life. But when I graduated, after I walked out of the front of Barron's Chapel Arden Simmons University, my grandfather... My mom's dad, who was kind of your typical Great Depression era mentality, all about working. He would be the guy that on Saturday mornings after a long away football game, uh, he would come and wake me up at 7 o'clock and tell me it was time to go move pop in the cotton field. He, He wouldn't even talk to my parents. He would bypass them. He would just walk in the door, go wake me up, and we would go work. Um, And he never apologized for that. Uh, And he wasn't the kind of guy to openly express his emotions Uh, He was the kind of guy that got lost in providing for his family, which was needed in his era. When I walked out of the front of Barron's Chapel, down the stairs, saw my family standing over here on the lawn uh, at Hardin-Simmons University, kind of in the middle of the whole college, I walked up to him. And and again, he was already kind of declining in health. Uh, His voice wasn't as strong anymore. His stance wasn't stable. And he was kind of crying, and I wondered what was going on. And when I got close enough to him, the only thing that he could say is, I'm proud of you. He had never uttered those words to me. I knew it. I knew that he was. You know, it was never, I never doubted the love of my family. But in that moment when he articulated that to me, man, give me another three years 
of that difficulty, right? I, 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 I can see why uh, the story we talked about a few weeks ago about Jacob working for Rachel, how those seven years seemed as about a few days because he was so in love with her, right? All that affliction just kind of passes away because of the light of what's at the end of the tunnel, because of the power of the goal. Light always runs off the darkness, always. And as soon as it comes on, the darkness cannot, maybe not be forgotten, but at least its power is completely taken away. So when Paul calls our suffering light momentary affliction, he is not belittling our suffering. He is simply saying that in or relative to the light, our suffering is small. In relation to the coming glory, our suffering is but momentary affliction. And then finally, he talks about what is seen versus what is unseen. It's funny how Paul puts this. It's backwards to the way that most people would think. <clears throat> he says that what is seen is what is transient. <clears throat> what is seen is what is fragile. <clears throat> what is seen is what is passing away. But it's what is unseen that is eternal. What is unseen that will not fade away. What is invisible that we can count on the most. What is seen will eventually disappear, but what is unseen never fades away. Think about it for a moment. The most powerful things in your life are things that you cannot see. The love that you have for your spouse and your kids, you cannot materialize that so that someone else might look at it. The faith that you have in Jesus is an invisible quality about you, something that someone else cannot see. You have to tell them about it or show them by your actions. They cannot see it as an object. All of the most important things in our life are. The patriotism that we feel as an American, the pride that we have in our community as being a part of a Grandview Zebra community, especially during this football playoff season of year. All of those things are intangible. All of those things are invisible. But those things drive us more than the visible money that we have, more than the cars in our garage or the homes that we have, more than anything that we can see with our own eyes. What is unseen is what drives us and motivates us to step up and wake up the next morning and go and do what we know we have to do, even the things we don't want to, because we believe so passionately in what is unseen that we're willing to make those sacrifices. Any life built on the cliche of our modern era that I'll believe it when I see it is an anemic life because there are so many things that you cannot see. And if the only thing you're going to believe in is something that you can see, I pity you. Your life is lame. Your life is boring. Your life is hopeless and empty if you are only placing hope and faith and joy in things you can touch and feel and manipulate. There is a power in what is unseen that is unrivaled by what is seen. Hope itself is invisible, yet it is arguably the most powerful force in the world. It is what moved the Americans to, to overthrow the British government, the hope that we might establish an independent nation. Uh, it is the, the hope that has every people that has ever argued or, or fought for independence. It is that same hope, something that is unseen. It's what you're willing to die for to protect those you love. It's something you cannot see, likely something you can't even really articulate that well. Hope is invisible, yet it drives us to push forward. So during this time of year, let it be a reminder that when, then that when what you can see, what you can actually see, tempts you to lose heart, look deeper. 
Christ is constantly moving in the invisible world, in your invisible world. Rest not in your strength and your ability to produce, but rest instead in your inner strength, which comes from the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Rest in what he has already done. Rest in the fact that he has already come for you, that he has already saved you, and one day he's going to come again to set it all right. Know that the pain of today will be swallowed up in the glory of tomorrow. You already have the down payment because Christ has already come once. Know that the pain you have felt, he already felt it all on the cross, already swallowed it, and then defeated it in the resurrection. And one day he will hand you that final victory and consummate everything that's been coming when he comes again in his fullness. Know that the pain of today will be swallowed up in the victory of tomorrow. And close your eyes when you're ready to give up. Look to the unseen Then you will find hope and rest. Fix your eyes on what you can't see, especially during this time of year. In the chaos of American Christmas, look deeper and be reminded of the God who came to give us hope. A hope that never dies. A hope that is unquenchable. And this is the hope that we celebrate. The hope that we rest in. We wait on the day when Christ will set it all right, when the wrongs will be corrected, when the tears will be dried, when death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. We await that day. We look forward to that day. We hope for that day. And we echo the Apostle John at the end of the book of Revelation with his cry, come Lord, quickly. We wait for that day. But until that day comes... We have hope, not hope that's, oh, get us out of here, but hope that is even until then, Christ has a plan. This light momentary affliction that in the middle of it seems pretty heavy is in, is, will fade away in light of the incomparable glory that Christ will bring. This is the Advent hope that we have. This is the Christ hope that we have. He has come and he will come again to finish it. We can hope in that. We can trust in that, no matter our circumstances. This morning, during our time of invitation, I invite anyone who does not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ to come down here as we're singing together. I would love to pray with you and talk with you about what that looks like. We also encourage you that if you do have a saving relationship with Jesus, and maybe you're in the midst of a situation where you are about to be one of the people that Paul talks about of losing heart or losing hope, Pray about it where you are. You come pray with me during our time of invitation or after the service. I would love to pray alongside you in that, but allow God, most importantly, to deal with you, to encourage you, and to remind you that he has come, he is here, and he will come again and set things right. Take hope in that. Rest in that. If you want to come down and pray about this or anything else, I'll be down here to do that with you. If you're interested in joining our church, we can come and talk about that as well. Whatever it is that is on your heart, know that the altar is open. I'm here to pray. You can always do business with God right where you're at. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Bill and Lynn are going to lead us in a song of invitation. You move in whatever way God calls.